Chapter Two of the Shadow of Victory. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lynn Thompson. The Shadow of Victory by Myrtle Reed. Chapter Two New Acquaintances. The next morning was cold and clear. The sun shone brilliantly, revealing unsuspected diamonds set in the snow. Forsyth woke late, wondered sleepily where he was, and then remembered. His room was on the western end of the house, which faced the south, and from his window he could see the fort and the agency on the other side of the river. A savoury suggestion of frying bacon penetrating the rough log partition impelled him to dress hurriedly. As he broke the ice in his water pitcher, he wondered whether the ensign had taken his regular plunge and shivered at the thought. When he reached the large room which served as kitchen, dining room, and parlour, he found the family already assembled. Chandonnet was just leaving the table, and Mrs. Mackenzie sat at the head, pouring coffee from a quaint and battered silver pot which had been her grandmother's. "'Good morning,' she said cheerily. "'I thought most likely you were beat out from travelling, "'and I told John to let you sleep.' "'She was a large, fair woman, matronly in every line, "'and her face was delicately pink. "'Her abundant hair was ashen blonde, "'escaping in little curls at her temples, "'and at the second glance one saw that it was rapidly turning grey. "'She had a wholesome air of cleanliness, "'and her blue eyes mirrored the kindness,' In the depths of her motherly heart her brood was gathered about her and every face had been scrubbed until it shone the baby sat at her right and pounded the table madly with his pewter spoon to the evident delight of his father maria indiana was sipping warm milk daintily like the four-year-old lady that she was and ellen and johnny conducted themselves with more dignity than is common to people of seven and nine Forsyth had made friends with the children the evening before, and, of his own accord, had extended the schooling to all but the baby. "'It's going to be a sight of comfort to me,' said Mrs. Mackenzie, "'to have the young ones out from underfoot half the time. "'The baby don't bother much. "'I tie him in his chair, give him something to play with, and he's all right. "'Where am I to teach, Aunt Eleanor?' "'In the next room, I guess. "'There's a fireplace in there, and you can have it all to yourselves.' Just wait till the breakfast things are out of the way, and I'll see to it. At this juncture, the ensign appeared, smiling and debonair. Morning! Am I too late for coffee? You've had some already this morning, haven't you? said Mackenzie. Well, now, that depends on what coffee really is. Of course they call it that, but it isn't to be mentioned in the same breath with Mrs. Mackenzie's. Robert noted that there was an extra cup on the table, and surmised that the delicate hint was not infrequent. "'Thank you,' continued the visitor in a grateful tone. "'You've saved my life.' "'I wish I had a dollar for every time I've saved your life,' laughed Mrs. Mackenzie. "'So do I, for you are a good and beautiful woman, and you deserve a fortune, if anybody ever did.' "'Go away, you flatterer. You remind me of a big motherless chicken.' Gaunt and chicken-like I may be, but never motherless while you live. A little bread and butter, please, to go with the coffee. Would you like some bacon? asked Mackenzie, hospitably. Well, perhaps, a little. Mrs. Mackenzie cooks it beautifully. 
Ellen, said her mother, get another plate. You're so good to me, murmured the ensign, drawing his chair closer to his hostess. Are those doughnuts? They are. I remember once when you gave me a doughnut just after drill. I can taste it yet. Is that so? I'd forgotten it. Now that I think of it, you didn't, but you said you would sometime. She laughed and pushed the plate toward him. Ye gods, he exclaimed, sinking his white teeth into a doughnut. What cooking! What a woman! I think I'll ask to be excused, said Mackenzie, rising and pushing back his chair. Certainly, responded the soldier, with a gesture of elaborate unconcern. Don't stay on my account, I beg of you. Think of real cream in your coffee, he sighed, scraping the pitcher with a spoon. I could drink cream. You're not going to, put in Mrs. Mackenzie, pointedly. I know it, he answered sadly. I only wish I were. When the last scrap of food had disappeared from the table, he stopped eating, but not before. That makes a man feel better, he announced, especially a suffering and dying invalid like me. Come on, Forsyth, I'm going to take you over to the fort for a bit. It did not occur to Robert to question the mandates of this lordly being. All right. Wait till I get my coat and hat. I'll be back in a few minutes, Aunt Eleanor, to open school. The devil you will, observed Ronald as they left the house. What a liar you are! The path which led to the gate was well trodden, early morning though it was. Indian tracks, said the ensign, pointing to a narrow line in the snow. You can always tell them. They keep their feet in single file. No company front about their walking. An unpainted fence surrounded the Mackenzie premises, and at the right and left of the gate were four tall Lombardy poplars, two on each side. Brown sparrows chattered and fought in the bare branches, scorning to fly away at their approach. The house had been built on a point of land which projected into the river and turned it sharply from its course. Between the patches of snow, the ice glittered in the sun. Salubrious spot! commented George as they struck the frozen surface of the stream. Don't get too near that hole. It's my bathtub, and it's weak around the edges. Near the middle of the river was a large, jagged space in the ice, and on the snow around it were finger marks and footprints. Rather looked for you out this morning, Ronald continued, was disappointed. Robert shrugged his shoulders, but made no reply. That happy architectural combination which we now approach, his guide went on, professionally is fort dearborn intoxicated party drew the plans and other intoxicated parties followed em i could improve it in several places but i'm obliged to make the best of it the flagpole in the middle of the parade ground is seventy-five feet high though you wouldn't suspect it on account of the heroic proportions of the other buildings and it interferes most beautifully with everything regular fort though Officers' quarters, barracks, offices, guardhouse, magazine, and other modern inventions. Commanding officer has a palatial residence to himself. The lieutenant is supposed to live in half of it, but he doesn't. Those warts at the southeast and northwest corners are blockhouses, made after a Chinese diagram. The upper story overhangs to give a down range for musketry and keep the enemy from setting fire to the fort. The double stockade is where the genius comes in, however. See how it slants and balances to corners? Makes the thing look like a quilt pattern. Would wear on the mind of a sensitive person. Hello, Charlie. Here's where we get in. You see there's a sunken road to the river, 
and there's a subterranean passage also with a well in it which ensures the water supply in case of siege we've got three pieces of light artillery six pounders and our muskets bayonets and pistols that's the agency house outside your uncle is government indian agent and sutler for the garrison and trader on his own account this is where the captain lives he pounded merrily at the door then entered unceremoniously and robert followed him awkwardly into the room where the captain and his wife sat at breakfast captain franklin was a grave silent man on the sunny side of forty who never spoke without cause and his wife was a pretty little woman with dark laughing eyes she brightened visibly when robert was presented to her for guests did not often appear at the fort coffee remarked ronald with a rising inflection you're a lucky man captain to have such coffee as mrs franklin makes every blessed morning of your life i only wish i were as fortunate he added impersonally robert bit his lips to keep from smiling as the ensign's wants were promptly supplied won't you have some too mr forsyth no thank you mrs franklin i've been to breakfast the emphasis on the personal pronoun caused george to look at him meaningly as he asked if he might have a bit of toast and an apple while he ate mrs franklin talked with forsyth and the captain listened in silence are you going to stay she inquired yes i hope so i'm going to teach my young cousins and help my uncle in any way i can i graduated from yale last year and went from there to detroit but as soon as i heard that aunt eleanor was willing to take me in i started and got here yesterday just before the storm did you have a pleasant journey yes fairly so i came by way of fort wayne with indian guides and relays of horses any news asked the captain no only the usual symptoms of discontent among the indians the officers in detroit think there may be another outbreak soon i don't there's no earthly reason for it indians aren't particular about reasons put in ronald come along robert we're going over to the lieutenants when they entered mrs howard was clearing away the breakfast dishes and after the introductions were over ronald did not hesitate to express his disappointment get that starving kid some coffee kit said the lieutenant and ronald gladly accepted the steaming cup with polite regret at the trouble he was causing and with profuse praise of the beverage itself sugar asked mrs howard no thank you just put your dainty finger in for a moment if you will be so kind your hand would sweeten the bitterest cup man is called upon to drink seems to me i smell pancakes he grinned appreciatively at forsyth as mrs howard went to the iron griddle that swung in the open fireplace not many he called to her six will do very nicely i don't want to be a pig you are though forsyth assured him in an undertone shut up he replied concisely acting upon the suggestion robert turned his attention to his host and they talked until the pangs of hunger were somewhat satisfied the lieutenant and his wife followed them to the door tell my mother i'm coming over to see her this afternoon said mrs howard all right answered robert whose mother he asked when they got outside mrs mackenzie of course don't you know your own relations when you see em mrs howard is your aunt's daughter and your uncle's stepdaughter so she's your cousin cousin-in-law i guess said robert my father was uncle john's half-brother so we're not very closely related she's nice though i wish she were my cousin 
Coffee doesn't come up to her mother's, soliloquized George. But it's pretty good. Hello, Doc, he shouted to a man on the opposite side of the parade ground. Had your breakfast? Good heavens, ejaculated Forsyth. You aren't going to eat again, are you? The ensign turned upon him a look of reproach. My rations aren't meant for full-grown men, he explained. If I couldn't get a bite outside occasionally, I'd dry up and blow away. There's a squaw down in the hollow who cooks a pretty good mess, and you can get a bowl of it for a fist of beads. It isn't overly clean, and it's my private opinion it's yellow dog, stewed, or perhaps I should say curried, but a starving man can't afford to be particular. Take me some time, Forsyth suggested carelessly. I've never eaten dog. All right, was the jovial answer. We'll go. Come on over and meet the doc. Robert was duly presented to Dr. Norton, whom the soldier characterized as the pill-roller of the garrison, and soon seized an opportunity to ask him the exact capacity of the human stomach. It varies, answered the doctor, wrinkling his brows in deep thought. Some people... We must go, interrupted George. It's time for school. They parted on the bank of the river, Robert studiously avoiding an opportunity to shake hands. When he entered the house, his pupils were waiting for him. The room set aside for educational purposes was just off the living room, and a bright fire was burning on the hearth. He found it difficult to teach three grades at once, and soon arranged alternate study and recitation for each, dismissing Maria Indiana in an hour with the first three letters of the alphabet well learned. The window, like the others in the house, commanded a view of the river and the fort, and gave a glimpse of the boundless plains beyond. Soldiers went in and out of the stockade, apparently at pleasure, and one or two of them came across, but he looked in vain for the stalwart young officer whom he was proud to call his friend. At dinner-time he inquired about the neighbours. Neighbours? repeated Mrs. Mackenzie, laughing. Why, we haven't any, except at the fort. Are you and Uncle John really the only people here? he asked seriously. No, not that. There are a few houses here. Mr. and Mrs. Burns live in one. They are our nearest neighbours, and are way up beyond the Lees place. They don't have anything to do with us, nor we with them. Two or three men and a boy live there, I believe, but we don't see much of them. They're part French and part Indian. Chandonnet used to live with them, and when we came here, he came to us. I guess that's one reason why they don't like us, for Sean's a good boy. And Margaret? Mrs. Mackenzie's face changed. Poor old thing, she said sadly. No one knows where or how she lives. We are not afraid of her, but the Indians are. They wouldn't touch a crazy person under any circumstances. Is there a regular Indian settlement here? Yes, there are wigwams all along the river. They are all Potawatomis and very friendly. The Chippewa and Winnebago tribes are farther south. John has a gift for dealing with the Indians. He has learned their language and their ways, and they treat him as if he were one of them. Did George show you the fort this morning? Most of it, smiled Forsyth. We called on the commissioned officers, and that young giant ate a hearty breakfast at each place. He is the life of the settlement, and I don't know what we'd do without him. I never saw anybody with such an inexhaustible fund of good spirits. Nothing is so bad that George can't get a joke out of it, and make us laugh in spite of our trouble. Did you see Dr. Norton? Yes, but only for a moment. 
He's jolly, too, and very good to all of us. I forgot to tell you when I first came in, said Robert, but I met Mrs. Howard, and she asked me to tell you that she was coming over to see you this afternoon. Bless her heart, said Mrs. Mackenzie tenderly. She never forgets her old mother. You'll never be old, Aunt Eleanor. I believe you have found the fountain of eternal youth. What, another flatterer? she asked, but the heightened colour in her cheek showed that she was pleased. During the afternoon, while Johnny struggled manfully with digits and addition, Robert saw Mrs. Howard coming across the river. She was a fair, tall woman, very blonde, with eyes like her mother's. The doctor stood at the entrance of the stockade, watching her, with something akin to wistfulness in his attitude. Poor soul, thought Robert. I expect he's lonesome. The afternoon sun stole into the room, marking out patches of light upon the rag carpet which covered the floor, and touched the rude logs kindly, as if to gild rather than to reveal. In the next room women's voices sounded, indistinct but pleasant, and here and there a low musical laugh, and the teacher fell to dreaming. How many are two and two, cousin Rob? Johnny asked for the third time. Four, don't you remember? You learned that this morning. Can I go now? I want to see my sister. Yes, run along. The patter of feet died away in the distance. But Robert still looked out upon the river with a smile upon his face. Presently he saw Mrs. Howard going toward the fort, with two of the children capering along beside her. Something stirred in the dreamer's pulses, indefinite, but none the less real. What man can place it, or knows it when it comes, that first vague longing for a home of his own? The minutes went by, and the light faded until the blood-red sunset fired the fort and stained the snowy reaches beyond. The door opened, a kettle sang, and someone came in. Asleep, dear? No, Aunt Eleanor. He went to her, put his arm around her, and touched her cheek lightly with his lips. I was only thinking that my lines have fallen in pleasant places. End of chapter 2